If you're enjoying these episodes of Yankton's Yardbirds, join us on our support site called buymeacoffee.com. Please consider clicking the support the show link included in the description of each show. You can choose to donate five, 10, 15, or $20, or you can become a member. Members will receive extra content that will be added as the shows progress. This will include pictures of the vets, audio interviews, maps, write-ups, and much more content that will be available to members only. Please consider making a donation or becoming a member soon. And as always, thank you for listening to Yankton's Yardbirds. This episode of Yankton's Yardbirds is brought to you by Stephanie Tamasia Interiors. Steph will provide you with full-service interior design. From new construction to creating that dream room, she can assist you with all aspects of design and construction process, as well as furniture, window coverings, art, and accessories. Stephanie Tamasia Interiors. Live in beauty and comfort. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds, a podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. Australians were fearful in early 1942. The Japanese were driving toward their island and, because of aerial and submarine attacks, it appeared that an invasion was imminent. There was very little that the Australians could do to stop an invasion because three of their infantry divisions were battling in North Africa and a fourth was in Malaya. Unbeknownst to the Australians, the Japanese had ruled out an invasion and were just harassing and isolating Australia. The Japanese hoped that Australians would, in frustration, declare their neutrality and prohibit the Americans from using their ports as a staging area. The Allies, who were on their heels, quickly formed the American-British-Dutch-Australian military. Their leaders established a defensive line to protect Australia. That line, which started at Singapore and traveled southeast along the eastern coasts of Sumatra, Java, and Timor, and then touched the northern shore of Australia, was referred to as the Malay Barrier. They also planned to confront the Japanese in New Guinea and along the American supply route from Hawaii to New Caledonia and Australia. In the Dutch East Indies, the Japanese in January of 1942 sacked cities in Borneo and Celebes. Twice, the Abda ships tried to attack Japanese convoys as they traveled south. In the second instance, on the 4th of February, the USS Houston was damaged when an aerial bomb damaged its deck and rear turret killing nearly 50 men. As seaman Robert Hanley noted, we had no air protection, no planes to protect us. All 11 ABDA ships withdrew. After that clash known as the Battle of Makassar Strait, the Japanese continued their southern drive and turned their focus to the islands of Sumatra, Java, and Timor. 
Just nine days later, Japanese forces landed on Sumatra. Time was of the essence. Only the western half of Timor was controlled by the Dutch, and reinforcements were desperately needed. At two in the morning on the 15th of February, 1942, the MV Tulagi left Darwin to deliver the 148th Field Artillery and Idaho National Guard unit. The four troop ships were protected by the Houston and the USS Peary, which had been docked on the south side of Java. The Peary escaped the Philippines in December. The Japanese spotted the ships on the 16th and initiated a sustained aerial attack on the convoy. This was the Houston's finest hour. Her guns splashed seven ships. Hanley said the sound of the six-inch guns firing was deafening. However, after running low on shells and amid great fear that a Japanese fleet led by a carrier was nearby, the convoy was ordered to withdraw to Darwin. The next day, the Japanese landed troops on the eastern Timor beaches and all the Allied forces, except for a small and aggressive group of men who turned to guerrilla warfare, were taken prisoner. The situation continued to look dire to those Australians who lived on the north coast. Timor is only 400 miles away from Australia. All the Dutch East Indies had fallen. Half of New Guinea was occupied. And the combined naval forces of the Allies, ABDA, couldn't even make a troop delivery. ABDA's remaining presence in the Malay barrier was on Java, and the only Allied city still standing was Port Moresby, an Australian protectorate located on the south side of eastern New Guinea. Things were about to get even worse. Because the ABDA forces did not have a detailed plan of attack, the Lucky 147th was positioned south of Darwin and ordered to defend it in case of Japanese invasion. Their meager ammunition inventory was shocking. They possessed about 90 rounds of artillery shells and about five rounds per soldier. The battle to protect Darwin would be a very short one with just these tools. After clearing brush and hewing trees, the Lucky 147th established 28-mile camp and within a month, 18-mile camp. The job was difficult because the trees were ironwood. You could shoot a 45 at a tree, noted Don Madrager, and there would be no damage. The setting was inhospitable. There were mounds of biting ants and their five-foot anthills threw off their compasses. They saw plenty of animals such as kangaroos, <laughs> dingoes, wallabies, and water buffaloes, but the most dangerous was the mosquito. Malaria was ever-present. The men pulled mosquito nets over their cots and every man was ordered to take Atabrine, a pill that hit a person's mouth and melted. Damnedest taste ever, said Moe. Harold, Moe's brother, refused the terrible tasting pills and later contracted malaria. Much of the time in camp was just boredom. To pass the time, they played card games and gambled with cigarettes because currency was scarce. They drank. Butch Colgan, an orderly for Otto Kabeisman, owned two cockatoos and had an illegal still. Otto looked and never found it. The men placed it where Otto could not find it, in his own tent. The birds inhaled the fumes and went crazy. Their beer bottles came in handy as they wedged them into the dirt to uplift wooden floors to prevent termite destruction. On the rare occasion that they had leave, the men drank beer and fought in the blue orchid. The men of the 147th were about their uniforms. They usually won the fights. Moe actually accused his brother and another guy of going AWOL to get to Melbourne. Moe was worried and hired the Black Trackers of Australia, Aborigines, to find him. Harold had gotten lost in the jungle outside of Darwin and didn't go to Melbourne. 
Ed Langtot and Mo always had a pot of coffee ready to drink 24 hours a day. The pot was alongside a dirt road and the Aussie red dust settled in the coffee. They started just to get rid of it. There was a fear that the Japanese would invade, said Arnold Albrecht. At a few minutes prior to 10 a.m. on 19 February 1942, the same moment that the Japanese landed on Timor, Albrecht thought he saw 20 to 30 planes fly over. Actually, a total of 188 planes in small V formations flew from the southwest toward Darwin. As an older member of the 147th, the 25-year-old remained calm. A guy pulled out field glasses and said, those are Japanese planes, remembered Albrecht. In the distance, we could hear the bombs exploding in Darwin. Japanese fighters strafed, bombers bombed, and then dive bombers arrived. They attacked for nearly an hour before a second wave of bombers arrived to blast the RFA field. According to Cliff Hicks, every time we heard those planes, I'll bet my slit trench was 13 feet deep. After failing to deliver the 148th field artillery, the Peary and Houston returned to a southern coast port on Java. However, the Peary was immediately sent to locate a possible Japanese submarine. She ran low on fuel oil and chugged to Darwin for refueling. Nine ships in the harbor, including the Peary, were sunk, and four men in the 148th National Guard, who had just arrived back from their aborted trip to Timor, perished. Also at the Darwin Harbor were the 147th Volunteers, including James Langtot, who had been evacuated from Timor after delivering fuel. They had just returned two hours prior to the attack. They jumped into a nearby slit trench and were not harmed, but the hospital where they were to be evaluated burned to the ground. The 147th could do very little. We cleared more trees to sight our cannons. Every night a Japanese plane flew over and dropped a bomb to keep us on edge, recounted Albrecht. It worked. Arnold Albrecht's parents were Frank and Minnie Tramp Albrecht, and they farmed eight miles east of Yankton near the Jim River. His father, an immigrant from Germany, made certain that they had a modern home with running water, an artesian well, and Delco electricity. As a child, Arnold enjoyed hunting, fishing, and trapping. His mother cooked the rabbits that Arnold trapped. Sacred Heart School was his alma mater, along with his eight siblings. When asked why he joined the National Guard in 1934, the same year he graduated from high school, Arnold emphasized that he was paid $1 to attend each meeting. At the time, his battery was using horses to haul 75-millimeter cannons. He was part of the one-year mobilization at Fort Ord, and he was aboard the USAT Willard A. Holbrook as it left Angel Island in November of 1941. Most of Arnold's service time was spent in Australia. He rotated out in 1944 due to sufficient points. After a one-month furlough home, he was shipped to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to train troops on six-inch howitzers. Upon completion of his tour of duty, he returned home to help his father farm, which he ended because there was much work and little income. He worked as a carpenter for many years. He married Georgie Ann Hunter in 1956, and after she passed in 1966, Doris Schneider in 1980. When interviewed, he said, I'm 97 and I look great. At least that's what all the girls tell me. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds. <laughs>